Welcome to the No Shame on You podcast, where we talk to mental health professionals, educators, and advocates. No Shame on You is a 501c3 organization dedicated to eliminating the stigma associated with mental health conditions and raising awareness. Our goal is for people who need help to seek it, for family members and friends to know how to provide proper support and to save lives. Welcome to the No Shame on You podcast, episode 39. I'm Wendy Singer, Director of Programming for No Shame on You. Today, we're talking with Abby Rabinowitz-Scheiman from the Hinda Institute and Mary Zukowski, a registered nurse. For close to 30 years, 40 years, excuse me, the Jewish chaplains and staff of Hinda Institute have dedicated themselves to helping individuals and their families navigate the criminal justice system and re-entry to society with faith, community, and dignity. Abigail is currently the program coordinator for the Hinda Institute. Prior to moving to Chicago, Abigail worked within the Canadian federal government for over 15 years as the manager of training and as a learning specialist in instructional design. Abigail has taught in diverse settings in Canada and Israel, including special education, adult education, high school, and ESL. Abigail has a degree in project management and has done extensive work within Jewish nonprofit organizations, including evaluation, focus group, groups, project implementation, fundraising, and grants. Mary, who is also one of our guests today, as I mentioned, is a registered nurse who has serviced mental health recipients in the past 31 years. She has particularly been interested in support services for patients post-discharge in the past um, and in the past has ex explained similar concerns after her own family member experienced a mental health issue and subse subsequent incarceration. Um, I'm so honored to be here with you. I met Abby um, through a connection and was automatically um, really interested in the work that the Hinda Institute does. So welcome today. Um, Abby, could you just start and tell us a little bit more about the work of the Hinda Institute and what services you provide? So I'm really honored to be here, Wendy. I always love speaking with you. Um, the Hinda Institute basically services three populations. We support victims and families, spouses, parents, and children, which we call the innocent collateral damage of crime. Um, we visit detained citizens all over Illinois, federal, state, jail, and some mental health institutions. Um, and, and we help those people who are alone and forgotten re-enter society to rebuild their lives for good. We offer casework support with job placement, housing. We also have uh, social support, therapy, um, and spiritual guidance. And we have a re-entry, re re-education program. So we offer multiple services to assist these clients. Amazing, amazing. When do you sleep? Abby? <laughs> That's a good question. My hours aren't so regular. <laughs> and today you brought, 
with us as a guest, Mary. Mary, tell us a little bit about yourself and, and your story. Uh, well, I am honored to uh, be a part of this podcast. Wendy, I've heard wonderful things about you, and it's so good to see you face to face. This is uh, a subject that has always been near and dear to my heart, because as a registered nurse, I could see what was done while the person was there. But I always wanted and thought about what happens to the person after they leave, what happens to their family, what happens to the community, and how can people succeed in staying healthy and staying out of the hospital and not require the um, restriction of having to leave their home, leave their their lifestyle, leave school or work and have to be hospitalized. And of course, before someone actually um, decompensates in this way, there are many things, there, there are many steps along the way that occur that we could step in and we could intervene and help that person remain in their family so that the family system and their own life is not disrupted. Um, Would you like to hear my story about what happened? Absolutely. So you're professionally involved in the mental health field as a, um, is it a a mental health nurse or psychiatric nurse? Yeah. Yeah. It's a psychiatric nurse, and of course, uh, what I the majority of my task was mental health uh, unit supervision of various programs. So the geropsychiatric, the duly diagnosed, which are people that have a mental illness and a substance abuse uh, problem, uh, acute meaning people that had just a, a decompensatory incident, and people that were. Um, hospitalized for 20 years and more because of issues of housing, because of legal issues. Um, What happened in our family is my youngest daughter, who was just stellar, and never had as much as a parking ticket. And all my life, uh, we were just going and getting awards for her. She was a salutatorian in a very a very, very uh, demanding program in a private school, never had any issues, Um, went to Northwestern University, graduated with honors, Fulbright scholar, and then began to show signs of mental illness. And when she did, unfortunately, uh, she engaged in some behaviors. She started to make phone calls to various providers of hers, which were deemed stalking, which is a violent crime. It's considered a violent crime. Uh, She never had personal contact with these people, but she made phone calls and she sent videos and was deemed a a felon and was incarcerated. Um, Now, I should say that it's important for people to know that mentally ill people are more often the victims of violence uh, rather than perpetrating violence. But there's this, uh, you know, idea that somehow they're going around, you know, causing harm. That's not true. They're often the victims uh, of, of all kinds of 
unhappy and unsavory behaviors, including violence. So what happened is um, my daughter was incarcerated. And long story short, while she was at the Cook Honey Jail, Rabbi, uh, uh, Rabbi Rabinovitz, um, Rabbi Benjamin Scheinman, Rabbi Scheinman, see, I imagine the two of you, I see you as a, a package <laughs> deal. <laughs> Rabbi Scheinman was one of the first to visit her, and she looked forward to that. This was the bright, shining light for her while incarcerated. And he would come, and he would read the Torah with her, and he would speak with her, and, and bring her gifts, and celebrate the holidays. And that is one of the bright, shining store uh, aspects of this incarceration, if there was to be one. And of course, uh, what happened in the interim, too, was COVID happened. So all the court hearings stopped and her uh, stay at the Cook County Jail was prolonged uh, for over a year. So she should have been out very quickly, maybe a few months. She ended up there almost two years. Her physical health deteriorated. Her mental health was not well tended to because the jails are not that well resource to provide mental health services. And fortunately, when she was released, because she had remained incarcerated for longer than the maximum amount that she would have gotten for this offense. So they discharged her and I got a call, come and get her, you know, and we provided for mental health follow-up ourselves privately because there were no arrangements made. So I have a question. Thank sure. you for sharing. Share first off. Thank you for sharing this this um, journey that you and your daughter and your family has had. And um, it's it is not something that anyone should experience. And I appreciate you opening up and and talking with our audience about it. Um, my question, Mary, is: Did she have a diagnosis before she was incarcerated? And then I have another question after that. She began, yes, she had a diagnosis uh, before she became incarcerated and it was well documented. She was already seeking mental health services prior to the incident. But as you can imagine, uh, you know, a intelligent, independent person living in a university is very quick to tell you, no, I'm okay, I'm handling this. And she was in fact seeing providers. She was taking medication, but uh, unfortunately deteriorated during this process, which I actually, you know, was, was lucky that we had documentation because this is how we pursued uh, uh, the, the uh, not guilty by reason of a mental illness diagnosis. So she was found not guilty. So I have heard of something called the mental health courts. Yes. Can you tell us, was your daughter a part of that program or not? And from what I understand is, is there are courts where if a mental health diagnosis is a um, factor in an incident, that it is looked at a little bit differently, that there's programs and probations and things to make sure that um, 
people are getting the help that they need when mental health is a factor? Well, you are absolutely right. Uh, there are criteria which um, I'm not really clear on, but you know, this whole COVID thing that happened brought everything to a screeching halt. Okay. And I was pretty much left to sending emails and such and was told that this case would continue in the criminal court because this was a felony, on and on and on. And um, she never actually made it to mental health court, but she did receive a mental health uh, stipulation to, to, to the felony, which rendered her or the outcome was not guilty by reason of insanity. It's a crazy, isn't it? Yeah. I'd like to add something there, Wendy, about mental health court. Mental health court has very, very high standards of entry. Um, and the way mental health is defined in the correctional um, institutions is very, very high inside the legal system. So being bipolar, schizophrenic, uh, developmentally disabled doesn't mean that you are considered to um, be exempt from court um, because you're still able to function. They have a different standard and mental health court also has very high standards as to who they will accept in the mental health court. So that means that the majority of people who go through the system, um, starting with Cook County Jail or another jail or MCC, um, end up in regular court. And of those people, 90% of people in court plead guilty. Mm -hmm. they, they and 97% at the federal level. So because they're faced with very high sentences and other things, which lack of funds, which force them to plead guilty. Mm -hmm. So that results in a very large representation of people with mental illness in our nation's jails and prisons. Currently, there's about 400,000 people behind bars suffering some sort of mental illness. Sheriff Dart himself estimates it at 40%. He's, as he calls himself, the largest mental health institution in America. Um, but the last time my husband went in with a lawyer and servicing our clients, um, all of them had mental health issues, even mm -hmm. though they were not they were not formally diagnosed as such. And that could mean being diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, 75% of people um, with mental health disorders encounter the criminal justice system, often for very minor things, um, like Mary's story. And so we're drawing a dichotomy between mental health and incarceration, and that dichotomy is false. Um, things are being done now, but the mental health court is, is a good beginning, but it's not sufficient. Thank you. Yeah. And I, Mary, what, do you want to add anything about the intersection yeah. of mental health and incarceration? Yeah. This is what uh, Abby's point is really very, very important. I have to say that over the years that I had worked uh, for the Illinois Department of Mental Health, uh, the... Uh, politics, the funding changed. And 
before uh, going into a psychiatric state facility was not that uh, firmly uh, regarded or that regulated as far as funding went. So people could take their time, staff could take their time uh, making arrangements, families could come in for therapy. Over the years that changed, the funding dried up uh, a lot of the funding that was supposed to go to mental health went into the general fund, as I understand. And length of stay all of a sudden uh, became an issue that psychiatric hospitalizations for the state of Illinois became looked or was were looked at like um, hospitalizations in a private uh, hospital. You had to meet certain criteria and the push was to, lead, to, to get the patient discharged. Now, I do have to say that the mental health code comes into play here because the mental health code, which was very needy, I mean, we really needed revisions, really went in the other direction. So that an adult who declines mental health services says, no, thank you, I'm out of here. And unless the doctor goes to court with this person uh, for commitment, that person can leave. You know, they can, uh, the requirement is that they uh, be re-evaluated uh, three days to five days and weekends and holidays don't count. But if the person says, no, I don't want to be here. And very often when patients come into the hospital, they kind of settle down, you know, because they're not out in the environment there. They have food, they're being tended to medically. And, and, you know, all of a sudden they kind of settle down. And so the staff say, well, we really don't have any need to keep this person here. And if they get into trouble, well, they'll come back again. Well, unfortunately they do get into trouble because they're discharged without any, um, arrangements for housing, for mental health follow-up, or they don't go and they end up, you know, um, doing something that gets them into the, uh, into the legal system and they get arrested and they don't have support and on and on and on. And, you know, it's, it's a vicious circle. It's, it's, it never stops. They keep going to the hospital, they get discharged. Patients have told me, you know, I know how to get, I don't want to be in, in any kind of a housing place where, where I'm being um, overly regulated and I know what to do. I'm going to hold up a little old lady and get back into jail. You know, so psychiatric facilities are, are many people avoid them as well. Yeah. And tell us how your daughter is today. Uh, thank you. Uh, thank you for letting me share that. This is not an easy topic. Um, for people with severe mental illness, Stabilization on medications is only a small part of it. Um, even when they are at their optimum uh, medication uh, levels and they're being managed, there is still a wide gap 
and a lot of room for therapy and for uh, support so that they can kind of, um, you know, get back on their feet. Fortunately, she was found not guilty. Barbara was found not guilty, but she has always been very private and very concerned about anyone knowing uh, her history and she wants her arrest record. And she has, she was charged with five different charges. She wants that sealed. Um, actually she wanted it expunged and we found out that um, felonies are not that easily expunged. So she retained an attorney who is uh, looking to have the record sealed. She was looking for therapy for some time, but again, I don't know if you've heard, but a lot of the therapists left the um, uh, left the field and became unavailable for therapy. So she found a therapist that she went to when she was in college and has been going there for therapy. But you know, there's not an abundance of of therapists for people such as Barbara. She's actually doing fine. She's working. She's managed on medication. She is looking forward to resuming uh, full employment. You know, she has a degree. She has a master's degree. <laughs> she's an English, English uh, lit major, but uh, she's looking to go back to informatics and her library job and get a degree in library uh, study. So she's, she's got hope. She has a plan. She, she is helping in the house and she is working on her physical recovery because she really deteriorated when she was incarcerated, gained a lot of weight, uh, not only because of the food, which is really, really, um, very poor quality, but, uh, the inactivity, you know, so it's a long haul. Uh, getting discharged or getting released from, from jail is really the beginning of a long road. Absolutely. Absolutely. To jump back to when your daughter was incarcerated, what, what were the mental health services that she could receive while in the facility? Uh, she we pursued and were able to retain the services of a psychiatric expert who testified uh, at her trials. Um, while she was incarcerated, there was a psychiatrist that medicated her, but she had lapses in medication. She told me sometimes a week or two at a time when the medication was misdelivered because they they because there was flooding there were different kinds of environmental issues the populations kept getting moved around so the medication couldn't find her and she couldn't find the medication and you know they it didn't sound like they did a whole lot to track that medication down so she went often for long periods of time without her medication um, there was a psychiatrist that would meet with her once a month or so, hardly what you would expect for a person with a serious mental illness. And the social worker that was there was mainly there for 
contacting families that someone was getting released or they wanted uh, their glasses or something. But uh, it would, the, the services were spotty at best. I, I would I, like I, to say something here, Wendy, if that's yes. possible. Um, the jails are really not mental health institutions. Um, they're given that role. But often our patients are inappropriately medicated or sedated um, and their mental health issues deteriorate. Mm -hmm. um, some of them, we have a client who developed permanent facial tics from mm -hmm. poorly administered medication. Or we have clients who now have anxiety that is out of control or PTSD that they didn't have before. Recently, prisons, which is different than jails, um, there's been multiple court cases um, um, by lawyers um, like Hirschman and Alan Mills that have taken on the prisons and they lose because they have inadequate health services and very punitive policies. So somebody who's mentally ill sometimes can't follow um, things like, for example, maybe they self-mutilate or something, right? Or they destroy properly. So property. So they're disproportionately placed in solitary confinement. And the staff is not qualified to administer this medication. Um, it's poorly administered, supervised. There's many, there's, when they were sued, it was found that some of the officers throw the medication through the bars the pills mm -hmm. through the bars at the patients, or mm -hmm. sometimes there's no treatment at all. And therefore the condition of the patient deteriorates mm -hmm. and they have further mental health breakdowns and they have more disciplinary hearings. They receive longer sentences. They do not get parole. And even though IDOC, the Illinois Department of Corrections has been sued and lost, that cycle has not been broken. And I suspect it's because of a lack of funding or understanding of the issue in the public's eye. So it's very important that we, that we talk about that um, because we have clients that a lot of our clients come out with mental health issues and they come out worse, not better. And that's, that's awful to hear. I was curious if either of you knew the statistic of how many mental health professionals they have per um per person who is incarcerated is yeah. there any info that you know and if not we yeah. can look for it doctors are um they've done some improvement and it varies by institution but it could be one for a thousand patients mm -hmm. so, mm -hmm. so the medical treatment in hospital in in um correctional institutions are appalling Right. appalling um people are dying of things that that they shouldn't be dying of mm -hmm. and it's known and they're sued for it but it has not been fixed right. abby you are absolutely correct and wendy you know i can tell you as far as my own daughter uh, she was diagnosed after discharge with PTSD. She did not have a diagnosis of PTSD prior to entering. She was attacked while incarcerated um, and uh, had to be put into protective custody. Uh, the uh, people in the environment of these incarcerated 
populations are guards. They are people with any kind of training. And when my daughter would call, she'd say, oh, this other inmate, she's drinking soap, she's cutting herself, she's doing all these things. And, um, you know, there, there wasn't that much of a response other than putting them, as Abby said, into um, isolation, into the hole, as they call it. Yeah. I think one of the good things happening, Wendy, is, you know, originally people are recognizing this is an issue. Our jails, we have the largest incarceration rate in the world. And people are recognizing that in the 80s, when they disassembled these mental health institutions, maybe even justifiably so, they didn't replace them. Right. And so when the police come to an incident, let's say somebody has their screaming at the police, right? I'm talking about a real incident. And they say, if you don't help me find my car, I'm going to kill you or something like that, right? Um, the police have a few options. One, they leave them. Two, they take them to a hospital. Or three, they put them in um, a correctional institution. And so they don't have too many options. Mm -hmm. Or they can put them in a shelter. That's also true. And they will make a decision whether or not to bring charges. And this combination of a lack of mental health facilities, their inability of mentally ill to follow directives, or, and continual encounters for minor, minor issues, and are really punitive anti-crime policies now in America, have made a lot of the mentally ill become incarcerated for really not severe crimes. But recently, there has been many efforts at diversion. And many organizations are creating places where people with mental health issues can go, um, get their medications, decompress, speak to somebody, which has helped, has become a beginning of a movement of diverting these people out of the correctional institutions and court. Because once they're in there, they're in the cycle. And right. It's just, it's almost impossible for them to get out. Thank you for sharing that. And I'm happy to hear that there is some positive move and moves in the right direction. Um, and we're grateful that Hinda Institute is there. And I thought, Mary, could you describe for us what programs via Hinda Institute that maybe your daughter or your family as a whole um, have participated in that that helped support you during this tough time and after well, sure when when uh, my daughter called and said rabbi shyman came to see her and he was very kind and and was uh you know comforted her and encouraged her i thought this this was the first positive thing that i had heard about her incarceration um so the mere fact that the rabbi reached out to her and visited her was huge. And then um, I was put in contact with Abby and with the support group, which I couldn't believe how wonderful it was to be with people that understood 
what issues we were facing that did not look at me and say, well, you must have done something wrong for your daughter to be incarcerated. You must be a bad mother. You must not be a, a faithful follower of, of your faith practices. You, you messed up. And none of those were true. So I have gotten tremendous support from Abby, from our Hinda support group, from the different classes, from Dr. Cutson, from, from the different legal uh, presentations. And, you know, luckily, uh, we did not have to face uh, placing Barbara anywhere. She came home and she's with us and we had the resources to follow up and get um, mental health services for her, even without those arrangements being made. So pretty much weekly uh, I, we meet uh, and there's tremendous support and an outpouring I'll say the word of, of love and compassion and understanding uh, for those of us that come to, to the group. I'd, I'd like to add also that Mary has become one of the leaders of our weekly, um, we call it our CARES support group, and has been really instrumental. And she's also become a huge advocate, and we have a documentary and um, a presentation that we take around and our different women, because um, it's mainly women who are in the families, um, um, have empowered themselves and created a grassroots movement in our community to, to educate people of the psychosocial stresses, financial stresses and ostracism that these families face. So Mary has been really instrumental there. Um, uh, Amazing. To say that, to thank her for that. Um, well, uh, you know, the other, we have women who continue their work. There's one woman whose adult son died uh, while in, the, in custody. And uh, she is advocating all over the place. She has joined a number of political uh, organizations and efforts that shine the light on these issues. Uh, there's a woman uh, who corresponds uh, with some of these inmates because they have no family. And, and uh, really, Abby, though, is the power behind this whole movement. She encourages us and, and gives us wonderful stories from the Torah to uh, to to enrich our experience. So I'm very grateful for all that. Abby, how do people, how does, how do you know when someone is incarcerated and they need your support? How does so, that happen? So we often meet our clients when they ask for a Jewish chaplain and it usually begins in jail. Sometimes we get, I just recently got a phone call and we're trying more and more. We've been around for 40 years, but not everyone's heard of us. I think because we do so much work on the ground, you know, like we're we're um, we're little uh, street cops. Um, but we more and more are trying to let people know that we offer casework services, counseling services. Um, our re-entry education program. Now we're promoting it. I think we had 57 people signed up for wow. the last one. And that has become really popular. Um, 
because we do a lot of, um, I'd say, you know, down to earth promotion. Our people are promoting what we do. Um, we don't have huge funding for it, but I think also word of mouth, people hear that we're around. Unfortunately, because of shame um, and, and just people, especially in our community, in the Jewish community, people don't want other people to know about it. They hide it. They suffer and they bear the burdens alone. And so we're trying more and more to reach out to people, um, direct them to other services, but also to provide um, support systems, some of which are really unique, like people call us for parole and probation issues. And really, we're one of the few organizations that provide that support. Um, so people come to us from different ways, but it's mainly through, um, unfortunately, correctional institutions. When they're there, they say they're interested in seeing a Jewish chaplain, and that's the start. Um, yes. Are there other, we have a lot of listeners from other states, and Hinda Institute is for the state of Illinois. Um, do you know if there, you know, are there similar models in other states? Yeah. And, and you know, I think there is a movement now. People are recognizing that this is a problem. Um, there's, of course, the Aleph Institute, um, which offers fantastic services. There is other um, organizations, both Jewish and a lot of non-Jewish organizations, particularly affiliated with the church groups. Um, they seem to be the ones that are understanding the humanity of people, understanding that people can make a mistake once, but they can turn over their lives, that they can rebuild it for good. They have forgiveness. So I find a lot of the faith-based organizations are going in. Um, that's and, wonderful to hear. Yeah, it's all over. It's a movement. It's a movement. I noticed something on your website, Abby, on the Hindu Institute, just talking about res the recidivism rate. Um, can you tell our listeners maybe what the national recidivism rate is and what it is for the clients that come to Hinda? So the national recidivism rate is over 75%, which is horrific. That means people are going out and going back in. Mm -hmm. But for Hinda, that rate is 10%. And we're opposite. We're almost the opposite of the national rate. Um, that means that those involved with us and in contact with us after reentry are arrest-free, crime-free. And that's because we stay with our clients for life. We have clients for 20 years. We, the rabbi calls them every week and, and we stay with them for life and we make sure they don't go back as much as we can. The biggest recidivism rate we do have, unfortunately, is with um, addiction um, and extreme mental health. That, that is where we do get recidivism. But mostly we, through faith-based association, relationships, mentoring, casework, and forming community, we keep our clients out and they are rebuilding their lives for good. Mm -hmm. Amazing. That's an amazing statistic. 
Abby said something extremely important and very, very near and dear to my heart. Uh, many of the patients that I work with were people with um, severe addiction issues. And there was a word that Abby said, and this is a word that I have heard uh, in recovery circles, that the opposite of addiction is not necessarily sobriety, but it's community. It's community, being isolated, being alone, not having a place to live, not having people care about you is the absolute incubator for relapse and for recidivism. And finding community, finding support, finding people that give you the time of day is, is profound in helping people stay on track. Right, and if you think about it, where do we want these people to go? I mean, we don't want them going back, right? And yet nobody's willing, we have to find them housing, but no one's willing to supply the housing. We need to find them employment. We, we People don't want to employ them. So they end up homeless, right? Mm -hmm. So we, we step in, we find them housing, we find them employment, we, we give them social connections, we give them casework, if they need psychiatric or deeper counseling, we refer them out. Um, sometimes we have preferred service providers for that so that we provide a network of support. And to the families as well, 55% of our casework is families because the families are bearing the brunt mm -hmm. of mental, sometimes for 30 years, they're dealing with people with mental health issues and so they're under stress as well. And, and so we try to create that, that um, network, that network all around as best we can. And that is the secret. That is the secret to our success. We're very small. I'd say we're small, but we're mighty. Our impact yeah. is really big. Um, we're not funded in the millions, that's for sure. But whatever we have, we we use well, we use well. Well, important question, Abby. How do people contact you? Where do they find you? Um, they can go to our internet. Um, everyone has my cell phone and, and Rabbi Scheinman's cell phone, which is probably a mistake sometimes. Well, what's your um, website that we can share? And we'll put this okay, in the text of www. the podcast. www.hindahelps.com. And you'll see a list of our activities there. And I understand you have a big event coming up in May for those listeners who are in the Chicagoland area. Will you share what's going on? Sure. Um, on May 28th, and No Shame on You is one of our pioneers in mental health, I should say, um, but NAMI and other places are joining us. We are, are, are going to be at the Botanical Gardens um, and this free parking, free admission with a ticket purchase, which is only $36. We are showing a play uh, based on... Uh, uh, I'd say a dramatic rendering based on the Dorothea Bick story who revolutionized mental health care in the Victorian area. She, she really era, she was one of the amazing advocates and she herself suffered mental health issues. 
Um, and we're, we're taking that story to discuss trauma um, within our own group. And we're hoping to have a panel discussion and there'll be some food. So <laughs> afterward you can go see the garden. It's May 28th. We're hoping it'll be beautiful. So, you know, my, my board always says to me, you're a little heavy, Abby. <laughs> People don't want to come and hear these issues, but I feel like if we don't advocate for these issues, if we don't bring them to light then and have discussions around them, then things just don't change because people are misinformed. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, we want to have fun. So we're hoping that the play, the botanical gardens um, will make this a really fun event as well. Okay. And I, I'm guessing that will be at your, on your website. Uh, if people yeah. are interested. So check that out, everybody. And I just wanted to close with just, Mary, thank you for sharing your story and all the complexity and hardship that 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 your daughter experienced, that you as a parent experienced. And I just want to ask how, you know, how do you, how are, how do you find the bravery and courage to share it? And why do you, why do you do it? Thank you for asking that, uh, uh, Wendy. You know, in in the people that I have met who have struggled with illness, whether it's mental illness or physical illness, the people that have the best outcomes are people that can share what they have received and what they have learned with other people. So a person, for example, that has gone through cancer treatment, they do way better when they reach out to other patients, other people with cancer. So um, part of it is is selfish. You know, my own recovery, my own sanity is contingent upon reaching out to other people and sharing what I have learned. And, you know, um, higher power, is never outdone in generosity. Whatever we offer, whatever we give is always richly, richly rewarded and compensated. And it's not that any of us go into this work because we're looking for some kind of um, recompense. But what happens is that we get way more than what we give. So this is my way of, of staying alive without medications, without addiction, without going to the shopping malls. This is a a very healthy and a very adaptive way of staying sane. I would like to add to this, Wendy, if I can. It takes courage because most of our parents don't want to share. Some of them are so private that they've moved out of their communities. They've moved into isolated places, so they don't need to be around family and community because of shame. Mm-hmm. And, and that also goes for our clients. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they move out from support. But those that have the courage to speak out, speak for everybody. They speak for all those people. I'm not telling people they should put themselves in a place, but their courage helps to bring the issues to the front. As you say, no shame on you. Mm-hmm. And, and that courage makes change, political change, social change, and other people get courage. Yes. Because now 
20 years ago, who would talk about mental health, about domestic violence? It was taboo, but now people are open to it. I think there is a mental health crisis now in America after COVID. People are open to talking about it. And I'm hoping that by talking about incarceration, that it will it will become recognized that this is this is your children. This is your cousin. It is not some evil person in dark corners. Mm -hmm. and, and as long as we draw that dichotomy, then we can't really work to treat and find solutions because we don't understand the issues. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's Mary's bravery that people that are giving people the understanding of issues and that will allow us to find solutions rather than rhetoric. And I think that's really important. Um, so I wanna give total kudos to Mary for her courage. Thank you, Mary. And thank you, Abby. You both are such incredible humans and I wanna give you a huge hug right now, but we're on Zoom, so I can't. So I'm sending it through First the ether. hug. <laughs> a virtual hug. Thank you for being with us and um, hope to see you in person soon. Hope to see you Thank soon, you. Wendy. It was a pleasure meeting you. Thank Bye. you so much. Bye. Bye, Bye. Bye, Abby. Take care. Bye.